Would you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one of the Bibles under the chairs in front of you. You can find Luke 2 on page 725. This morning, the start of Advent means four Sundays of anticipating the realities of Christmas. Karen reminded us in the weekly email on Wednesday that the word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And Advent properly aims in two directions at the same time. Uh, First, it's a season of remembrance pointing us back to the coming of the Christ child born in a manger. And secondly, it's a season of anticipation pointing us forward to the return of Jesus, his second coming at the end of history. This year, uh, our series is called The Gifts of Christmas, and um, you have stuffed in your bulletin uh, an invite card that is not only to, for you to glance at, to note the special service times as we get closer to Christmas and the features of the services and the uh, things in between, like the attic orchestra. I hope some of you are dusting off your instruments and getting ready for that two Sundays from today. Details in the bulletin. Uh, but more importantly than letting you know, because you can always figure out when to come to church on Christmas Eve, uh, that card is for you to give out to someone, a friend, uh, a neighbor, a family member, who might be more open than usual to the idea of coming to church during the Christmas season. So use that as an invitation card. They'll have all the information they need. They'll show up at the right time. And if you um, have other folks you want to give a card to, take as many as you will give out. They should be out on the info table by the elevator. Um, But the series graphic recognizes the commercialization of Christmas, the overemphasis on presents. And so over these next weeks... Um, we'll focus on recognizing the more valuable, the more significant, the longest-lasting treasure that is Jesus himself, not the giving and receiving of wrapped presents under the tree, but the presence of God himself in the person of the Son, Jesus. His coming brought blessings too numerous to count, but we're going to spend four Sundays and Christmas Eve on a handful of these. And the first one is the gift of promised hope. We'll look to Simeon and an encounter with the baby Jesus that happened well after his birth because Simeon represents the heart of Advent, anticipation of something promised. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this unique encounter, an old man and a little baby 
show us freshly the significance of this meeting in the temple. Give us a fresh wonder at these um, sometimes too familiar accounts of the coming of the Savior child. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Three headings that will help us walk through this short passage. First, consecration, and then anticipation and recognition, and finally, satisfaction. Consecration. Our, Our passage describes this unique encounter that happens in the temple courts in the heart of Jerusalem, but we need to start with this question. Why are Joseph and Mary with their baby Jesus at the temple to begin with? And the short answer is this. The parents are faithfully obeying the word of God. They're they're looking back to Genesis chapter 17, where God commanded the sign of circumcision to be placed on infant boys eight days old. They're looking back to Leviticus chapter 12 that required uh, waiting a total of 40 days, which verse 22 calls the time of purification. And then, just as God commanded in Exodus chapter 13, Joseph and Mary are coming to bring their firstborn son in the temple courts at Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This, this wasn't just a request that God bless their baby. This was an important act of worship that flowed out of um, the Exodus, the salvation acts of God in redeeming or freeing his people out of slavery to the land of Egypt. And the key event of the Exodus was the Passover. The principle behind the Passover was simply this. Only if the life of a lamb was taken would the life life of, of the firstborn son in every household be spared, whether Hebrew or Egyptian. The, The principle applied all the same. And so the Israelites, instructed by the Lord through Moses, slayed the um, slew the lamb and painted the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, signaling the angel of the Lord to pass over that household, sparing the firstborn son. And so um, salvation came through a substitute sacrifice that was established way back in Exodus. The heart of this event that formed the the identity of the people of God, a blood-bought people redeemed from slavery, When Israel left Egypt that very same day, this is what God said to them. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. That's exactly what Joseph and Mary are doing in Jerusalem, to consecrate their firstborn son. That's part of what we do in baptizing babies. We consecrate them to the Lord. We're not merely saying, Lord, we offer up this child in service to you because you're the king. We're, 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 we're acknowledging that these children belong to God. And uh, the difference is we no longer need to bring a sacrifice to buy back our, our children or redeem them because Jesus himself This infant who would later become a man and live the perfect life lays down his life as the perfect sacrifice. There's no longer any need to bring animals because the perfect Lamb of God came 
and offered up himself. The, the, the baptismal sacrament doesn't guarantee salvation any more than Joseph and Mary or um, better yet, their uh, Israelite co- counterparts because Jesus was sinless and did not need salvation. But baptism doesn't guarantee salvation any more than these practices flowing out of the Old Testament would guarantee that children born to these Israelite families would grow to trust in the God of Israel. So this baby Jesus belonged to God just like every other firstborn. And the parents brought a sacrifice in order to redeem their child. In, in other words, buy him back. If, if the Lord says every firstborn male belongs to me, God doesn't intend to keep that child. Uh, there's no intent to kill that child. But the, the figurative sense of belonging to the Lord means the parents need to offer sacrifice to redeem their child, uh, to redeem um, to, to buy back from God. And this is part of the wonder that Josh talked about of Christmas, the marvel of Christmas. The son whom Joseph and Mary redeemed or bought back from the Lord with a sacrifice shortly after his birth was the one who would one day redeem them by offering himself in his death. If you trust in this amazing reality at the heart of Christianity, Jesus is your release. Jesus served as your substitute sacrifice in order to free you from the bonds of sin. Paul tells the church in Corinth later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. What price was that? The life of the firstborn son of God. This little Lord Jesus redeemed by two pigeons because his parents were too poor to afford the more costly sacrifice, would one day redeem all of his believing people with the priceless sacrifice of his perfectly righteous life. The first, this first bookend of Jesus' life for Mary was, as you would imagine, a day of celebration, a, a milestone in the family, a day most likely of community affirmation, recognizing this gift from God. But the last bookend of Jesus' life at the cross would prove to be very different. And Simeon even uh, tells her this in verse 35. We'll look at it a little bit more closely later. A sword will pierce her heart. That's the price of our celebration. That's the cost of redeeming sinners like us. Secondly, we notice anticipation and recognition we get to this fascinating guy, Simeon, and we need to realize that the story isn't just about this old man you could picture with um, a long white beard holding on to a staff, slightly bent over from his years, with piercing eyes filled with wisdom, looking about a man who had been waiting for decades and decades. The story's not just about him. The story is also about the wider context, the, the fuller story in this scene, that the people of God, the Israelites, have been waiting for centuries and centuries. Simeon reflects the heart of anticipation of the coming of, the, of, of Messiah. If we look back to the Old Testament, one of the most important prophecies about the Messiah is, is in Isaiah chapter 53, and it's called the Suffering Servant Passage because it describes the Messiah in these terms as a lowly, humble servant experiencing affliction. If, if we apply that to the, state, to the condition of the nation of Israel in the first century, 
we'd say this. Israel had long been a nation of sorrows and familiar with suffering. She had been crushed for her iniquities, her sin. She had been stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted through the judgment that God had brought upon her because of her unfaithfulness. And so whether it's the nation of Israel or Simeon picturing this wider cultural context, waiting has an edge to it. It has a, a hunger, a desperation to it. Verse 25 describes Simeon as waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word showed up in our hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's, um, it, it, the sense of consolation refers to the people's expectation that God will come to rescue us, to console us in our sorrows. It's the same word that the Apostle John uses in his gospel to refer to the Holy Spirit, who, who sometimes is translated as the comforter or the helper. Uh, the same sense is happening here, paraclete in the Greek. And here's the thing. You only wait in anticipation to be com- comforted or consoled if you've suffered loss, if you're in need, if you're sick, grieving, too weak to help yourself. I want to paint this a bit of a contrast uh, because some of you are really good at helping others. You serve, you're generous with your time, with your money, you give, you, you offer to do things, you'll show up at somebody's house, you'll bake a, me- uh, you'll, you'll bake a cake or, or cook up a meal, you'll offer to, to babysit, but you're horrible at receiving help. And that imbalance means you have a gospel problem. Because if you can offer grace to other people, favor that's undeserved, freely so, but you can't receive grace, there's a good chance it's a sign that you trust far too much in your own strength. You have a gospel problem. On the outside, people think you're a marvelous Christian. On the inside, you trust in yourself far too much. On the other hand, others of you are regularly looking for help from other people. Maybe you want compassion, pity, extra attention, somebody to care. Maybe you're looking for admiration for your ability to bear up under suffering, live the difficult life you're living. Maybe you want people to notice how impossibly busy and stressed out and uh, uh, burdened you are with your calendar, with all the things on your plate, but you also have a gospel problem. Because all too often, in your real need, you're trusting too much in strength from the wrong sources. Finding the balance is very much related to salvation and eternity and a healthy God-desired relationship with your Creator. It requires first a realization in humility, in weakness, that each of us is desperately in need of rescue because of our personal sin. Each of us is utterly unable to do anything about our biggest problem, but it then needs to lead to a realization that the only solution to that problem is found in the heart of God's promises revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That the strength of your real, the source of your real strength comes from no one else and nowhere else 
than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to anticipate God's salvation in humility like Simeon. The world says even mentioning, let alone glorying in your weakness, is to be despised. The gospel says when you come to the end of yourself and admit your need and you anticipate something that God alone can bring, that's the only path to accessing true strength, real salvation. How weak do you need to be to have lived decades and decades like Simeon, to be revered by your people as a wise, righteous, respectable figure, likely well-known in Jerusalem, and then to hold a not-quite-six-week-old baby in your arms call him your Savior, lift up praises to the Lord at the sight of him and call your life complete. How weak and humble do you need to be to admit all those things? Do you notice, and will you notice throughout this next month as we walk through familiar gospel accounts, the narratives of Jesus' birth, as we sing songs that remind us of these events, do you notice who anticipates Messiah? Who recognizes Jesus? It's not the who's who in Jerusalem. It's a lowly carpenter and his teenage wife, pregnant in scandal, Um, going to a nobody-nothing country town in Bethlehem to have this child in utter obscurity. It moves on to uh, the the first group that recognizes that the Savior has come, and they are a bunch of shepherds, the lowliest of the low among uh, in, in that society. And it moves on, fast forward to this scene about 40 days later at the temple, where an old man, and then in the next paragraph, a widow, anticipate and now recognize the coming of the Messiah. Humility. Emptiness. I want you to imagine being out in the desert, dying of thirst, and miraculously coming upon a spring, an oasis. You would drop your sack to the ground and pull everything out that could possibly hold water. And if it had anything in it, you'd dump it out on the ground. Even if it was a bucket of gold. Why you'd have a bucket of gold carrying around in the desert? You know, that that illustration breaks down. But the gold itself, as you're dying of thirst, is worthless. You empty the bucket and you fill up whatever you have, bags, containers, with fresh, life-giving water. Because you're dying. Emptiness is necessary for filling to abundance. Weakness and humility and need create a longing for God to invade time and space with His redemption. And a man like Simeon, with his physical eyesight waning, has sharp spiritual eyesight as he anticipates and then recognizes the coming of the Savior. You know what most often blinds? what most often gets in the way of anticipating the Messiah's coming, it starts with worldly abundance and the comfort that, I'll say deliberately, afflicts us here in Bergen County, New Jersey, in the surrounding suburbs. Too much reliance on self, all of which tend to drown out spiritual humility. If you don't anticipate Christ in His coming, 
or in his coming again. Maybe you're too busy accomplishing, consuming, spending, planning, dreaming about the wrong things to pay any attention to the fact that the Savior has come. And the most important thing you could do during Advent is to whet your appetite, is to cultivate a fresh sense of anticipation because the Savior is coming again. For Simeon, anticipation has finally been satisfied. His waiting has been rewarded. That's where we go next, satisfaction. Imagine a special day. Joseph and Mary, maybe they're throwing a party back home. Um, They're heading to the temple with their newborn baby. Spiritual significance added to this family milestone. First baby presented at the temple. And walking in the temple courts, imagine Mary noticing this old man staring at her baby with piercing eyes, now walking toward her, maybe trembling at the anticipation that he has waited for decades and he finally sees what he's been longing for. Imagine Mary looking at his eyes seeing something as if Jesus, this little baby, were the focal point of everything incredibly significant going on, spiritually speaking, in this most sacred of places at the temple. This man is looking at her baby as if he is the new temple. Verse 28 simply tells us, Simeon took him in his arms. And I wonder, did he just grab Jesus out of this mother's arms? Did did she recoil? Did she say, no way, buddy. (laughs) I don't know who you are. Or or did she, was she moved by the same spirit who's mentioned three times? The same spirit in Simeon prompting her to realize somehow against all reason, this is right. This is why we're here. This is what God has intended not just for decades, but for centuries past, and things are coming into fulfillment. His spirit-filled vision saw something that Mary had yet to fully understand. He held in his arms the Redeemer himself. My eyes have seen your salvation, verse 30. Simeon wasn't praying for what might become in Jesus' life. Simeon was praising God for what already was true. Mary and Joseph had brought Jesus to the temple to redeem him. But Simeon stood there holding their son, declaring that Jesus was the one who would truly and completely redeem them. The great Dutch painter Rembrandt painted this scene, simply calling it the Song of Simeon. It was his very last painting. And it lay in his house unfinished when he died in 1669. Do you realize that's incredibly ironic? Because Simeon praises God because his life is complete. It is wrapped up. It has a period, perhaps even an exclamation point at the end of his life. I'm done, God. The point of my existence is complete and Rembrandt paints this very scene and dies before finishing it, dot, 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 to be continued. The irony is amazing. 
Verse 29 gives us a sense of the, the period at the end of Simeon's life or the exclamation point. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I'm ready to die. The point of my life has come to fulfillment and there's nothing more that I need to do. There's nothing more that I need to experience. He's received everything he needs and wants in holding and beholding the Messiah himself. Paul shared a similar thought in his letter to the Philippians. First, he says in chapter 1, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Then he says to the Philippian church, I got work to do, so that's why I'm here. (laughs) God hasn't taken me away yet, and I'm content with that. And later on in chapter 3, he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Whatever was in that bucket, whatever was what's in your, your backpack that's dumped out onto the sand, never to be retrieved, is considered rubbish. Why? Because what you'll fill these containers with is life-giving. It's life-sustaining. Nothing is more important. How close or how far are you from considering everything else in your life loss, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus? Do you see Jesus as the gift of Christmas, far more valuable than anything on your wish list? And is there a part of you that longs to see him, not just to know facts about him, not just to be aware of these things, to know he's here, that he came once and that he's coming again, as significant as those truths are, but to behold the Savior like Simeon and to come into his presence. Over these next few weeks, you'll buy presents. Maybe you'll get a few. You'll perhaps drink and eat more than you should Excess is, unfortunately, the, the theme of a worldly Christmas. But on December 26th, or if it carries on because you're off from school or from work until January 2nd or whatever the first Monday is afterwards, on that day, will you feel any more significant satisfaction? Will you be filled to the measure of overflowing? Will you have a better, more confident sense of why God has planted you on earth? Why are you here? What's your purpose? Will that be yours any more so than it is before Christmas season begins? If you want true riches, significance, you need to look to the real gift of Christmas. And that involves consecrating yourself to the Lord recognizing that you belong to him if you place your faith in Jesus because you've been bought at a price. And that involves anticipating his coming again to realize that whatever is not the way it's supposed to be in life will be made new on the last day. That is God's promise. And Jesus' coming points us ahead to his coming again. And it also involves, and it ends in, satisfaction. A taste or a glimpse now, that's worth praying for, but fullness later, knowing that all things are Christ and all else is loss. Last thing, we can't skip this. I mentioned verse 35 earlier. 
Remember, it's a special day. Young parents, first child, spiritual family significance, and Simeon has to ruin it all. (laughs) But he's compelled to because he's led by the Spirit, and he adds this element of prophecy. He directs the end of it at Mary. He says to this mama, a sword will pierce your own soul too. One one, um, commentary I read said this was a long spear that would have also been used to skewer a large animal for sacrifice. The sword will pierce your own, own soul too, Mary. Because hope is made possible. Hope transforms promise into reality only because Jesus accepted the sword of the Father's judgment upon himself on the cross, though he deserved none of it. Because salvation comes through a substitute sacrifice. Hope transforms into reality as you trust in this Jesus because he went to his death that you might anticipate and taste one day fullness of life. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Let that be our Advent prayer. Let's pray now. Lord, be the desire of every heart and then every nation and then the entire creation. Be our consolation. Draw near to us in our need, in our brokenness, in our pain and remind us of these perfect promises that are yes and amen in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.